0: Brilliant. Lovely to see you all. Hope you're warm enough. The air conditioning is certainly... uh powerful this morning. So I hope you're warm enough. If you get cold, you can just start waving your arms around. That's all right. Uh, if you're new, let me welcome you as well. My name's Philip. I'm a uh, pastor here, at the, one of the pastors here at the church. And it's lovely to see you. If you're new to us or new to church, full stop. Really glad that you're here. I'm going to continue this teaching series that Jason just, uh, Nick just mentioned in a moment. Before I do that, I thought it would just be good to pray together briefly in the light of the, the election and the various changes taking place in our nation. You might be feeling hugely optimistic. You might be feeling hugely pessimistic. You might be somewhere in between, um, but the fact is that our nation is taking some, going through some changes, going through some shaking, you might say, uh, with the various uh, terrorist atrocities that we've suffered and obviously the, the uh, surprising, slightly odd result of Thursday's election. So wherever you're at this morning, can I just try and lead us in prayer? Because if you're a Christian this morning, you might be nervous, you might be unsure, you might be optimistic, I don't know, but you have no reason to be shaken. You have no reason to be anything other than secure and confident in a God who sets authorities and governments in place for a purpose and for his own ends ultimately and calls us to then pray for them and also to engage with them, to engage with our community. So let's do that as I pray and then hopefully you can respond in your own heart as well. Lord Jesus, we just commit our nation to you. Um, We don't know why some of these things are happening, both the horrendous things of Manchester and London, and then the rather confusing, democratic things of election and so forth. And God, we thank you that you are so willing for us to bring our questions to you, to bring our doubts to you, to bring even our fears to you. God, we thank you you're willing and loving of us to do that. We thank you too that you've set government and authority in place as part of your good design for humanity to flourish. And so we want to pray for our government. We pray for Theresa May as she presumably leads a new government. We pray you'd bless her, help her, give her wisdom, help her to make changes, help her to draw people in, help her to work with others. And we pray that these uh, democratic changes would cause our nation only to flourish more. We pray for these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, like I mentioned, we're in the middle of a series. If you're new here, it's called Vital Signs, Indications of a Healthy Heart. And we are saying that there are numbers of vital signs, numbers of indications that tell us whether our our spiritual hearts, our souls, are healthy. And this week, I want to look at one of the key indicators as to whether this spiritual heart of ours is healthy, and that is our speech. Which you might think is fairly timely in the aftermath of a of an election and all the speech that went with it. You know, Jesus said this in, in chapter six, verse forty five of Luke. Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he immediately linked together how this is doing with what we say. Um, what we say, or indeed what we type is a key indicator of the health of our hearts. And by speech, I'm referring to what we say verbally and also all that we type, because we communicate our words now in all kinds of ways. So I want to look at the power of our words. I want to look at the source of our words. And I want to get more practical and look at how to deploy words of life. So the power of words, the source of words, and how do we deploy words of life, whether we speak them or whether we type them. So the power of words. You know, words are powerful, aren't they? You know, sometimes it only takes one word to cause significant change or, or, or wonder or disaster even. Can we just put this um, next slide up as an example of how, the, how words can do all sorts of things? It only takes one word, one word to be changed, one word to be different, and the meaning is changed quite dramatically. Could you put the next slide up, please, Uh, Chris? This was a uh, sign in the wonderful nation of Wales. Uh, No entry for heavy goods vehicles, residential site only. Now, you might know that in Wales, they like to have the Welsh language as well on their various signs because they're very passionate about the Welsh language. And so I'm told that when the sign makers made this sign, they obviously didn't know what the Welsh was for no entry, heavy goods, vehicles, residential site only. So they sent it off to the Welsh authorities to for it to be translated. They received an email back and they put the text onto the sign below. However, the Welsh translation actually says, I am not in the office at the moment. Send any work to be translated. <laughs> Words carry significant power. They can change the meaning very, very easily. In this election, words have carried significant power, haven't they? Both for good and for ill, if you like. At times in the election, you hear certain words being used and you start to dream and you start to hope and you think, wow, I'd, I'd love to live in a society like that. We get excited by a vision of the future where, you know, for example, we can be a nation that's both secure and welcoming or a nation that's both prosperous and fair and the words that get printed or spoken can catch our hearts up with life. And other times, the words spoken in the election can be kind of more a bit deathly. Words that are spoken to belittle or to demean or to uh, marginalize uh, or to overly simplify things that are complex. We've seen in our election, words do great good and breathe great life, and we've also seen at times words kind of sometimes suck the life out of things because words have power, a huge amount of power. And the Bible's been saying this for a long time. The Bible's very clear that words have dramatic amounts of power. On the screen behind me now, we can put the next slide, and there's a summary of some of the things the Bible has to say about words. So the Bible says that words are both very dangerous and also very, very good. Either way, very powerful. And that's a a snippet of some of the ways in which the Bible describes the danger of words, the times when words can bring something more akin to death than life. They're mostly taken from Proverbs, but also from other parts of the Bible, that words can be like sword thrusts to us. They can be that damaging. Words can cause people to come to ruin, to stir up anger, to pour out folly, to break the spirit. They can be like death, even, Words can bring filthiness, foolishness, a world of unrighteousness. Words can set on fire the entire course of life. Words can be like deadly poison. Words can be like restless evil. They can be like salt water, bitter in the mouth. Bible was pretty blunt about the dangerous power of words. But it also tells us about the wonderful life-giving power of words. The Bible also says, again, lots of it is from Uh, proverbs but other parts of the bible that words can bring healing that words can preserve life they can turn away anger in a moment they can commend knowledge to us they can even be like a tree of life it's the kind of power that words have they can build up they can give grace they can be part of thanksgiving they can be kind tender-hearted forgiving gracious words can be seasoned with salt not in the sense of being bitter, but in the sense of flavoring and preserving what is good. They can be like fresh water in the mouth. Words can even be like oracles of God, the very words of God in our mouth. The Bible is very clear. Words have great power. And in simple terms, the Bible is saying, words have the power of death, such is their power, and they also have the power of life, I wonder where we are at, or where you are at this morning, in terms of how you use words on that spectrum of death to life. I'm guessing most of us aren't always using words to bring death. Probably also we're not always using words to bring life. So where would you be on the spectrum of, the, of words at the moment? Or, to put it a different way which, way, which way are you headed on that spectrum at the moment? Which where's your trajectory? Are your words mainly more towards life-giving words? are they mainly more towards kind of deathly words? Where is your use of words both online and verbally at at the moment? At which point we could just finish and I could just say right, end end of sermon, end of talk. Really you need to go from here and you need to do these things. Make sure you use your words to bring healing and to preserve life and to turn away anger and don't use your words to cause folly and foolishness and so on. That might get us so far. But my experience is when I go away and just try and do the right Christian thing, it's not very life giving. It's not very successful. So we're going to get to some practical things in a moment. But first of all, I want to think about what is the source of our words. Rather than leaping into the how, what is the source of our words? I want to return to the verse that I mentioned right at the beginning when Jesus speaks in Luke 6. And in verse 43, Jesus says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, and nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus is saying our words are like fruit. And the fruit is not decided by what the fruit wants to be. The fruit is decided by what kind of tree it is. A fig tree produces figs and a vine produces grapes. A thorn bush cannot produce figs or grapes. And Jesus is saying it's the same principle with our words. They stem from their own tree, which in our case is our heart, our souls. The type of heart we have. Jesus is saying, that's what will determine the type of words that we speak. Now remember, this whole series is not about just looking at this. It's not about symptom change. It's not about trying to speak more words of life. It's not about making sure, be more prayerful, be more joyful, be more generous. What this series is about is going, taking a step back and looking at what, how our heart is doing. And yes, the symptoms might need to change, but it's the heart where all these things start. And our speech is no different our words are the fruit of what's in our heart. For example, a, a heart uh, in which that, that, that loves God as primary and loves people, other people as a result is going to speak different types of words, type different types of words to a heart that actually loves self as primary. It's what's in here. One, uh, one writer put it like this. A critical heart produces a critical tongue. A self-righteous heart produces a judgmental tongue. A bitter heart produces an acerbic tongue. An ungrateful heart produces a grumbling tongue. But a loving heart produces a gracious tongue. A faithful heart produces a truthful tongue. A peaceful heart produces a reconciling tongue. A trusting heart produces an encouraging tongue. I heard a a story recently of a, of a, of a dad who um, found that his little girl had a bit of a habit of drawing on the wall with her crayons or her felt, felt tips and uh, they hadn't really managed, managed to make it clear to her that she really shouldn't do that and he got home from work one day to find that sure enough there she was scribbling on the wall with felt tips and he, he just kind of lost it a bit how dare you do that what are you doing, I've got to clean it off now I've told you don't do that the following week, he um, got home from work and this little girl was doing the same thing. In fact, this time, apparently she was just looking at him whilst doing it. <laughs> this time, he did something very different. He came up to her, he knelt down, he said, sweetheart, I love you. You're a big girl now. Why don't I show you how to wash this off and then we can go and draw some things together on some paper. And apparently she never drew on the wall again. And the point is that he had realized in between the two incidents, he realized something was out of kilter with his heart. He realized in the first instance, his, the primary love in his heart was really pointing to himself. It was a love of self. Therefore, because self was primary when his daughter did this, for him, what, what that meant was, well, I've got to clean it off now. It meant that when his friends arrived that evening for dinner, they were going to think that his parenting was pretty poor, and his children were out of control. It was because he was tired, and he was stressed, and this was only adding to it. And so because of those things, the words kind of followed suit. But then he spent some time thinking about what was in his heart, and asking God to change that a little bit, asking himself questions like, why is my daughter doing this? How can I help her to mature, and to grow, and to flourish? How can I best express my love for her when it clearly crosses with her will? How can I be like Jesus and harmonize truth with grace? And when the heart change took place, therefore his words were totally different. And my point is that it's, it's what we treasure in our hearts. And we could spend ages looking at that, the various things that vie for attention in our hearts. But it's what we treasure in our hearts, what takes the primary place. That is the thing, especially when the pressure's on, that will fuel the words that we speak and the words that we type. And it will send us, maybe not with the extremes of death and life, but it will send our trajectory one way or the other, towards life-giving words or towards the opposite, what's primary in our hearts. So number three, how to deploy words of life, how to use words of life. I've got a few things I want to uh, mention. And the first is this. It's actually not that, as much as practical as you might think, but I think it's primary in its importance. Focus not on even our source of our words, but on the source of all words. Focus not so much on our source of our words, but on the source of all words. Because words are deeply precious to God. They really are. They're part of his creation. They're part of the beginning of all things. In, part, in fact, their words are part of the way he did his creating. Think about Genesis 1, what we're told, the, the, the very beginning of, of time and space. We're told that God constantly used words to create. Over and over again it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be light and darkness and the moon and animals and seas and sun and so on. Now, the how and the when that he did that is a whole other topic. We're not talking about the means or the timing by which God caused creation. The point is God was using words to cause mechanisms and actions to spring into life. Words and life are intimately linked for God. And then, as you track the story of the Bible through to the moment at which it pivots on Jesus, you find the apostle John at the beginning of his gospel describing Jesus in a fascinating way. You might know the bit I'm about to read out from the beginning of John chapter one. John describes Jesus like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14 it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So in Jesus we have the word, the one who in some extraordinary way, Jesus who was present with the father and the spirit at the beginning of all things. Jesus the word carrying out the father's spoken word into creation, and then, 2,000 years ago, he becomes flesh. He takes the form of a human. And how does he speak? With grace and truth. With truth and grace. So you could say, in Jesus, the word becomes flesh and then shows us how to use words. In Jesus, the word becomes flesh and then shows us how to use words in grace and in truth. And. In Jesus, we receive the power to be able to use words in grace and truth and to bring life. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3, it says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which must include how we speak, surely. So, number one, how to deploy words is always to look to the word. The word that became flesh and showed us how to use words. Look at him. If you're a Christian, you're united to him. One with him. Number two, how to deploy words. Seldomly. Seldomly or sparingly. You know, Whether you're an internal processor or an external processor like me that you kind of think as you speak, which I've discovered can get you into all kinds of trouble. Either way... In our society, we are pretty quick to use words, are we not? We live in an age where we have never had so many means of quickly using words, whether it's to text or to WhatsApp or to tweet or to email, we can use words like that so without even having to speak them. We can use them. But the Bible would caution us when it comes to that aspect. Proverbs 10 verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And James, Jesus' brother, puts it typically bluntly in chapter one, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. That has impacted me this week. I've been exploring just that kind of verse this week myself. Am I quick to listen and slow to speak? Or am I slow to listen and quick to speak? You look at Jesus Not only did he listen to people so well, to the point where he knew what was in here, not only did he consider so carefully his choice of words, he was prepared not just to speak seldomly, but to be silent. Very prepared to be silent. It's almost as if Jesus had some kind of freedom that perhaps we don't always have when we need to respond to things so quickly. He didn't need the last word. Have you noticed that about Jesus? He didn't need the last word. I know know often I need the last words. Being married teaches you that. Just want to finish this discussion off quite nicely. Ding, ding, last word. Jesus never needed the last words. There's a writer called Michael Kelly who explains it like this. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus knew absolutely who he was and what he was here to do. He was and is the son in whom his father was and is well-pleased. At every moment of his earthly life and ministry, he was completely confident in his identity and mission. Even when the crowd wanted to hoist him on their shoulders and carry him to power, Jesus felt no need to succumb to their praise. We feel the need to respond in such situations in part because we lack the same assurance and confidence. We don't always know who we are, or at least we haven't fully embraced who we are in Christ. And This is the key bit, this is what it means in some ways to be a Christian. We, because of Jesus, have become sons and daughters in whom the Father is well pleased. And because we are, we have no need for any more self-justification. If this truth had deeper roots in our hearts, we might be slower to speak. To be a Christian is somebody who is united to Jesus, a son or a daughter of the Father, and Jesus says, God says over you, you are my son, my daughter, in whom I, have, I am well pleased. And when that gets deep into your heart, you don't need to have the last words. You don't need to be the one who responds to win the argument. You don't need to be the one who has to justify themselves because a Christian is somebody who God, the eternal God, the one who spoke creation to being, is well pleased with. That's helped me this week. Thirdly, third way to deploy words, encouragingly, encouragingly. Over and over again, one of the things that describes the New Testament church community is they seem to be a community of mutual, passionate encouragement of each other. Phrases like building one another up, or exhorting one another, or bearing burdens with one another, serving one another, seeking good for one another, encouraging one another. There's a sense of a community that is cheering each other on, partly through the words that they use. I once once run a marathon in Paris uh, very slowly, (laughs) but I did finish it, and one of the reasons why I finished it was because people were cheering me on. People I didn't even know we're using encouraging words. No one said, mate, clocks, clock's get on here a bit. I, I wouldn't bother if I was you. It's five hours now. No one said that. I don't think, anyway. I didn't hear them. Lots of people are using encouraging words. Keep going. You can do it. The finish is almost in sight. Like right, 10 miles away. Encouraging words do an awful lot to help us run. And the Bible talks a lot about the Christian life being like a race. Everyone has their race marked out, their lane marked out for them. But it doesn't mean we run alone. Means you run side by side, cheering each other on. And encouraging words can be just life giving, can't they? To be able to keep running your race. I don't know what that little beeping noise is, but it's keeping us all uh, entertained. And if we're an encourager, and we all know them, don't we? We all know those people. I hope we all know at least one person in our life, in our workplace, in our church. They just have that kind of gift of encouragement. They just seem to be able to find the words to say when things aren't looking so great. Those people who just choose life-giving words over death-giving words when things aren't so great. Most people, they're good to work with, aren't they? They're good to be in sports teams with. They're good to be friends with. They're good to have in church. Encouraging people. And we can take that encouraging words into every sphere of life. It does so much, it breathes life into wherever you are. Mums at the school gates, you know the mums that use their words to encourage and breathe life into things. And you probably also know the mums who use their words for the opposite. Encouraging words are so powerful. Online, how much do we think before we type? Do we ask ourselves any questions at all before we instantly type online? Do we ask ourselves questions like, is this going to be encouraging? Is this gonna build someone up? Is it gonna be inspiring in any way? Is it gonna bring life to a situation? Is it gonna honor God and make much of him? They're good questions to ask before we just instantly type. Why am I really typing to kind of promote self? or to win an argument, or to justify myself, or to even trip somebody up? What's the rationale behind the words that we use online? And if we only had one thing in mind, they're gonna be encouraging. We couldn't go too far on, could we? If, if the world only had that in mind, you imagine the radical transformation that would take place on the online community. Everyone thought, I'm only gonna type things that are gonna be encouraging. Imagine the change in the Twitter sphere. And again, don't just try and do that thing. Remember, to be a Christian is somebody who is empowered to do this. The Word, Jesus, didn't just say, "This is how to use words." Now, copy me. He said, "I'm giving you the Counselor, the the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Encourager. The one who encourages you the most is the one that can help us to encourage others with our words." Two more. Fourthly, we use. I want to deploy words by doing so gently. By doing so gently. So if we do so by thinking about the word, we do so seldomly, we do so encouragingly, and we do so gently, because speaking words of truth and grace doesn't mean we only use easy words, and we never use hard words. It doesn't mean all the words that we use are immediately pleasant to the hearer. That's not what we're talking about as authentic um, discipleship. Jesus came in truth and grace. So it's not about using flattery It's not what we're saying, using light, fluffy, flattering words. Because we can speak words that might sound encouraging or kind or gracious even, but actually it's flattery. If we just kind of get under the bonnet a little bit. And the difference is that flattery ultimately is not about building someone up or encouraging them or teaching them or or spurring them on. Flattery actually is about using pleasant sounding words to manipulate someone to our own ends. That's kind of what flattery is, but it's dressed up in... In nice words, God tells us in Proverbs twenty nine five that a man who flatters his neighbour actually spreads a net for his feet. We trip people up by using words of flattery. So hard words have a place, and when in unity with Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, we we seek to speak truth and grace, or grace and truth. They may not always be soothing. It may not be soothing or pleasant truth. It may not be soothing or pleasant truth. But if it's done gently gently from a position of love for God and love for people then hard truth is still life giving that's what we're after I'm sure only anyone that some of the most life giving words that have been spoken to me have been some of the hardest words that have been spoken to me the opposite of flattery have you had that? people have loved you enough to gently and carefully point things out and in the end that brings life not flattering you and letting you um, go the other way. You know, let, me give you an, let me give you an example of using, I hope this is a good example, a real live example of me using gentle words to speak a harder truth or even to correct. One thing I've noticed in the life of this wonderful community is that some of us have begun to use the name of God in quite casual ways on occasions. So oh my God or OMG of course it gets used all across our culture and if you're not a Christian this morning I've got no problem with you using that in some ways because to be casual about the name of God is consistent with a worldview that is casual or dismissive about God. Makes sense. But if, if you're singing and praising the name of God to be powerful and wonderful and to, to hold truth and to be the source of life and if you're believing that this God is holy and wonderful and has yet done all that needs to be done to, be, to bring you to him and then we use a phrase like oh my God. Do we not just kind of suck the life and the magnificence and the wonder out of the the name of God? So I'm just trying to bring just a gentle correction to something that I've just observed. That to be a Christian is to believe there is power in the name of God. There is wonder in the name of God. There is magnificence in the name of God. And then to, to use that then casually, to use it in vain, as the Bible would say, kind of just then sucks some of that out doesn't honor God, and doesn't point people towards him. So I would ask us to think carefully about that, if that is something that you find is just kind of seeped into your everyday language. And again, the answer is not just to try a bit harder and don't do it. The answer is to work on this, is to fill up your heart with the magnificence of God, with why God is wonderful, with why he's awesome, with why he's amazing. And when a heart is filled up with the magnificence of God, then you can't but help use the name of God in the same way. There's my example of a gentle correction. You can judge for yourself how it went. And the final how to use, how to deploy words is creatively, creatively. John Piper is an American pastor and he said, God made words to carry the freight of truth and beauty. God made words to carry the freight of truth and beauty. Like a train that is carrying precious, precious, precious things. You know, Jesus used words so creatively, didn't he? Constantly using metaphors and similes and illustrations and thinking really carefully about how he could point people towards God. He was so creative with his language, telling stories. We're invited to use words creatively to carry the freight of beauty and truth. I know some of you love to write or blog or or sing or speak or write lyrics, and that's part of God in you. The God that spoke into being has put creativity inside you, and we're invited to use this wonderful gift of words that we can use creatively and generously and kindly to to exalt things of truth and grace and wonder and ultimately point people towards God. You know, another way of describing a Christian, the Bible says, is a, a new creation, a brand new person with, the Bible says, the mind of Christ, which is a baffling concept, in some ways. But if you have the mind of Christ, then you can think like Jesus, can use words creatively like Jesus to point people towards Him, to point people towards truth and grace and mercy. So, what am I saying? How to deploy words. Focus on the Word, always come back to Him. The Word who became flesh and showed us how to use words. If we're a community that does that, and then a community that uses words seldomly or sparingly, encouragingly, gently when correcting and speaking hard words, and creatively, that would be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? And it already is a beautiful thing in many ways. But a community focused on the word that then uses words like him, sparingly, encouragingly, gently when speaking hard words, and creatively, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we can be like that. Why, by trying hard? No by focusing on the word and receiving the empowering, encouraging work of the Holy Spirit inside these hearts so that we start to speak and type words of life all the time. Um, Jamie, could you come and help us to worship with the band to respond? I want to be sparing with my own words and try and model what I've, what I've said. And sometimes just moments of reflection are really helpful, uh, especially if you are more an internal process. Moments of silence are really helpful just to reflect. Um, so I'm just going to leave just a bit of space to do that, just a safe place here. You can close your eyes if you want to. I want you just to just reflect on where do you think you are on the spectrum of words that bring life or death? What might God be saying to you this morning about how he wants to use your words online and speech-wise to bring life. The very thing that he used his words for at the beginning of all time, he wants to use you to bring words of life where you are. Why don't we have a moment just to think, reflect, pray in our hearts, and then we'll stand and worship and see what else God wants to do and to help us. Lord God, we, we thank you that in Jesus we see uh, the perfect example of how words are used to bring life. Even some of the hardest words still bring life and truth and grace. We thank you, God, that you have given us this amazing gift of words, of language, of being creative with them, of using them to exalt truth and grace and things of worth and wonder and majesty. And we just pray, for, I pray for each of us this morning, that whatever it is that you've highlighted, that you, by your spirit, would confirm and you would empower each person here, every person here, you'd empower us by the encourager himself, the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. I pray you'd empower us to speak and to type words of life this week. That our families, our school gate moments, our commutes, our workplaces, and this precious church community that they and we would know the joy of having words spoken sparingly, words spoken gently, words spoken encouragingly and creatively into their midst and a life that follows. We love you, Jesus. We thank you so much. You didn't just call us to try and copy you. You've united us to yourself and empowered us to extend your kingdom to all those around us. Amen.